I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, ancient Greece and Rome have a heavy influence on the idea of manhood we promote on the Art of Manliness. In fact, this classical conception of manliness was how much of the West defined manhood up until about the middle of the 20th century. For example, if you were to ask a man living in 1920 what manliness meant, he'd probably give you roughly the same answer as a Greek or Roman man living 2,000 years ago. My guest on the podcast today is a classical scholar who has spent time thinking and writing about Greek and Roman notions of manliness. His name is Ted Linden. I had Ted on the podcast a while back ago to discuss his book, Soldiers and Ghosts, which is about battle and antiquity. That was episode number 231, if you want to check that out. Well, today on the show, Ted goes into detail how the Greeks and the Romans defined manliness. We begin with the Greeks and how the Homeric epics, particularly the Iliad, served as their Bible on how to be a man and how Achilles and Odysseus were held as differing models of manhood. Ted then explains how the Athenian philosophers like Plato and Aristotle tried to tame the Bronze Age notion of manliness by making self-control an important element of being a man. We then shift gears to the Romans and discuss how they borrowed elements of Greek manliness to shape their own culture of manhood, as well as how Roman ideas and manliness differed from the Greeks. And we end our conversation talking about why the virtue of self-control pops up in definitions of manliness, not just in the West, but also in Eastern cultures like in Japan or China, and also how we're living in an age of self-control. If you want to check out the show notes after the show's over, where you can find links to resources, you can delve deeper in those topics, just go to aom.is slash virtus. It's V-I-R-T-U-S. It's manliness in Latin. Ted Linden, welcome back to the show. Delighted to be here. So we had you on the show about, I think a year ago, to talk about your book, Soldiers and Ghosts, about the history of battle in classical antiquity and Greece and Rome. And when we were talking after the show was over, we were talking about the website, The Art of Manliness, and kind of what the idea of manliness that we're promoting. And I mentioned, you know, I studied classics in college and that the idea of manliness, I'm kind of tapping into is a bit of the ancient Roman idea. And then you said, well, that's, I study that. That's kind of, that's my, I do that. That's what I think about. And I write about and research about. So I, after I heard that, I, I said, I, I got to have you back on so we can dig deeper into classical notions of manliness. So I think it'd be good to start off with the ancient Greeks because they were before the Romans. How did the ancient Greeks think of manliness? What, what did they think made a man a manly man? Well, um, the first time we see the Greeks, of course, uh, is in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And already there, you have 
at least two conflicting definitions, what you could call the Achilles ethos and the Odysseus or Ulysses uh, ethos. Of course, the term we're looking at, arete, is the term which will, in later Greeks, become the, the word they use for virtue. In Homeric Greek, it tends to mean something more like excellence or competitive excellence. And of course, Homeric heroes are always competing with each other to be the best. Uh, on both sides, competing mostly with their the people on their side, not actually with the enemy. And you have, on the one hand, Achilles, whose particular excellence is in actual fighting. He is a tremendous warrior. He is the strongest, the swiftest, the most accurate thrower of spears, the most accurate stabber with swords, that sort of thing. Uh, on the one hand, and of course, he is the, the hero of the Iliad. And then you have the hero of the Odyssey, Odysseus, whose particular arete, whose particular excellence is cunning, the Greek word metis being a sort of type of cunning intelligence, which is at the same time competitive. So you are uh, competing with everyone else in being more cunning than them. Uh, in war, this is manifested by things like organizing ambushes or, or, or effective deployments in if you are trying to make your way home. Like Odysseus, it's tricking cyclopses and telling lies and things of that nature to advance your case or to advance your progress. These two different conceptions are, as I say, already present in the Homeric poems, although I think it's fair to say that the Odysseus ethos might have been regarded, if we, if we assume the Homeric poems are historical, which, is, which of course they're not, the Odysseus ethos is sort of a special case. Most Homeric heroes compete with and in the fashion of Achilles through bravery and, 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 and talent in combat rather than with Odysseus in cunning and public speaking, which are his particular things. So we have the dichotomy of you know, cunning and I guess Achilles represents Andrea. Is that the word courage, the Greek word for courage? It is, but what's confusing is Andrea is a later word. So in the Homeric lexicon, you would simply refer to what these guys have as arete. And the basic meaning of arete is courage or success in battle. But then you can also say, and there are other Aratai, like those which Odysseus has, cunning, wisdom in counsel, <clears throat> and things like that. Subsequently, Greek will sort out this confusion and will say, okay, Aratai are any excellences, and we're going to use the word Andrea, which means literally manliness, for the for what Achilles was particularly good at, that is to say, a, a bravery and strength in battle. So the language, and the, and the same will later be true in Latin, and the language permits of a large degree of ambiguity for some time, but then kills off that ambiguity by introducing a new word for one particular form of excellent. And, and that would be Andrea, as you say, which just comes from anair. So it's just the quality of being a man. But the quality of being a man for these purposes is defined in, in military terms, basically means courage. And what about Hector? Because he's another character in the Iliad that displays, you could say, some notion of manliness. Did the Greeks look to him as sort of an exemplar or was he sort of ignored because he was a Trojan? No, well, of course, the Trojans are, um, they are, there's not a lot of imagination of other cultures in the, in the Iliad. The Trojans are 
ethically identical to or very similar to the Greeks, to the Achaeans. And um, Hector is the chief person on the Trojan side who competes in the same way that Achilles does. That is to say, he is incredibly courageous and, uh, and so forth. So uh, he has that particular arete, as it would be described in, in his period. Later, he would be said to be the, the Trojan champion of Andrea. Now, he has, and this has always been, there are a series of cross-cutting qualities um, which he has, which makes which make him very attractive to us. He loves his wife. He loves his son. He feels a tremendous degree of actual responsibility to his family, to his nation. These are various things. These are qualities that are quite rare on the Achaean side. So he's to us, he's much more human. But none of those qualities would be described as Andrea. They might or might not interfere with Andrea, but uh, they're certainly they're certainly not part of uh, in that period. They're certainly not part of manliness. Although in later Greek times, when the uh, when the definition of arete uh, widens much much further, they could certainly be included. Okay, and so let's say so this idea of manliness evolved a bit because they got more specific because they had words that came up with it to describe it more specifically. They had erite sort of describe excellence, you know, in totality, right? As a general term. I'm curious, how did the Greek notion of manliness change, say, during I guess would be the axial age? Like I'm thinking, like Plato, the golden age of you know Greek philosophy. Did they change how the Greeks thought of manliness? Did they take that Homeric ideal and tamp it down or try to downplay it or transform it in some way? They include it in a bigger system. And the bigger system is if going to be of immense historical significance. And we see this again beginning in the pre-Socratics and then formulated in one form in Plato and formulated in another form in Aristotle, by which it's pretty well mature and doesn't change much thereafter. The Greeks come up with a series of virtues, which they consider to be the most important ones. And one of these is Andrea, military courage and excellence. That that is still allowed its place. But it's very definitely over time, and particularly to philosophers, it becomes a junior partner. And they are particularly interested in phrenesis or sophros, or sorry, phrenesis or sophia, which we might describe as intellectual wisdom or intelligence. They are interested in sophrosune, which is the competitive virtue of self-control or the wisdom of self-control. And they're interested in justness, dikaiosune. You can call it justice, but that steals from the fact that it is a competitive quality. Everyone is competing to be more just than everybody else. So justness is probably a better term than, than justice. Because the philosophers are inhabiting a primarily civilian world and trying to offer advice to people who live in primarily civilian circumstances, the result is that they formulate the system of these are the so-called canonical virtues or cardinal virtues, uh, which uh, emphasize things that you need in civilian life. 
But we have to understand and expect that a much more Homeric system continues to operate beside this. And if rather than talking to Plato, we were to talk to an Athenian general contemporary to Plato, and we were to ask him about Arete, he might not give us those four canonical elements, but he might say something very much closer to uh, what was this case in Homer. Well, courage is number one, he would say, and then, you know, uh, the cunning intelligence, which is almost completely left out of the philosophical system, is also important. Of those four, the one which makes of the four canonical philosophical virtues, the one which makes most inroads in actual life of non-philosophers, escapes, as it were, from the world of intellectuals, is to our sense, surprisingly, sophrosune, self-control. And that manifests itself, if you remember, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. People are very People cry a lot. There's a great deal of sort of overt and open emotion. While in classical times, in the axial age, if you like, there a tremendous emphasis is placed on the suppression of emotion, always appearing absolutely calm. That's one of the reasons that you will never see a Greek statue from that period with anything that we would describe as an expression on its face. They all look calm because they're trying to demonstrate their sophrosune. And so that makes an impact on real people's sense of what manliness is. And I think the great, the great thing one has to track when one is looking at ancient conceptions of manliness is the motion from the highly emotional, sort of violence-based Homeric conception to this everyday living in the city conception, um, which is not the full philosophical uh, cardinal virtues, but is heavily inflected with sophrosune. And, you know, children are brought up and, and told, push and gentlemen do not show emotion. To show emotion is womanly. When people die, you know, women tear their hair out and they shriek and they generally carry on. That's not how we behave. And so then you start developing heroes, again, surprising to us, who enact or demonstrate this particular quality. Most famous in Athenian history is Pericles, who we are told never even wept at his son's funerals, except at the last one, uh, when he then had no more legitimate heirs, who would never go to drinking parties because it was impossible to maintain an adequate reserve. And we must imagine him as a, being an exceptionally sort of marmorial person, never showing any emotion, never smiling, never frowning. This is the, and again, this is also reflected in the art of the time. This is what you are trying to be. So what we have is this, this, this transformation of manliness from primarily military to primarily a question of personal deportment, and particularly as Sophrosune becomes, even in the philosophers, the supreme virtue. And it's weird to us, because why would self-control of all things become so important? And it's a great pity. People have traced this motion. People have traced this increasing emphasis on Sophrosune as the most important thing you can be, but no one has ever really explained it. 
And I guess if I were a Marxist, which I'm not, I would probably look to the existence of a slave society in which you have, particularly if you're an important person, an enormous amount of completely ungovernable power over other people. And because your power in law over these other people, your slaves, is so absolute, but everyone in society understands that you should not, like, get mad at them and murder them, which uh, did occasionally happen, because the power of individual uh, persons of high status was so extraordinary in uh, by our standards, it made sense for them to develop a cult of self-control, of controlling themselves. Now, that's an appealing theory. The problem with the theory is that other societies have also developed very similar conceptions, such as, for example, the Spanish in the period, Spanish nobility in the period of the Spanish Armada. Also, they developed this sort of habit of impassivity. The samurai of the Edo period, the Tokugawa shogunate, similarly, even though they were highly emotional uh, in, in, in earlier works of Japanese literature, they also develop this sense that you show your rank by being absolutely impassive. So this seems to sort of exist across the world in unconnected societies and is therefore, to me, absolutely fascinating. Another theory might simply be that it is a way in which you can show social distinction, which requires a lot of expensive or at least time consuming assuming training, and you're not sure in this, but at least if you're brought up in a good family, you're expected to sort of pick this sort of thing up. And it's a social distinction, which people who do not have that kind of upbringing have a great deal of difficulty imitating. So you can look at, in the, in the Greek and Roman case, you can look at it as maybe a question of slavery, or in the, in the broader sense, a question of looking for a form of social distinction. I'm not very convinced by any of these things, but it is nevertheless the case that this is how the definition of manliness in Greek antiquity evolves, so that by the time of 400, by the time of Thucydides, Plato, and so forth, that you are primarily thinking in terms of self-control and no longer primarily thinking uh, in terms of excellence in combat. Well, so that raises an interesting point. So around that same time, the Axial Age, or around Aristotle's time, Alexander the Great came to power. He was actually tutored by Aristotle. But Alexander the Great was captivated by this Homeric notion of manliness, like Achilles, like he worshipped, he wanted to be the next Achilles. So was there a synthesis in Alexander of sort of this self-control, Aristotelian, Platonic idea of manliness with that more Homeric idea? I think in I think Aristotle would have liked there to be some synthesis, but I think in fact uh, Alexander is a genuine throwback, and he comes of course from Macedonia, which was a very old-fashioned monarchy where many of the old Homeric values were still very much alive. They did not live in a city-state. The assumption has always been that there's some connection between sophrosune, self-control, and living in the city-state. If you're a king, you don't really have to be self-controlled in this way. So he really is much more Homeric. What's funny about Alexander is, of course, that the people who write about him subsequently, and particularly Plutarch, 
are very anxious to make him self-controlled because that is the, the supreme virtue. And so Plutarch's life of Alexander is basically a series of attempts to show how self-controlled he was. And it's such a flop because he was not actually self-controlled at all. Not only did he kill a number of friends, some of them in he would get drunk and, and kill people, but he was also clearly very fond of the bottle, or I guess they didn't have bottles, but of wine, which is another thing that the properly self-controlled person is not supposed to be. So his being self-controlled is a product of the historians after him who think that as the greatest of the Greeks, he has to have been self-controlled. But the real guy was pretty pretty solidly Homeric and not self-controlled at all. That's really interesting. Well, let's shift gears a bit to the Romans. Absolutely. So what was their notion of manliness? Did they borrow anything from the Greeks, or did they sort of start their own idea of manliness from the beginning of... There, there's a lot of Greek influence, influence particularly when the Romans around Cicero's day start spending more and more time reading philosophy. And one of the things is that it's probable that the Roman the Roman ruling class around Cicero's day was the most philosophical. That is to say, they read more philosophy than anyone in the history of the world, including the Greeks before them. In Greece, philosophy had already had always been a relatively minority activity, but the Romans, we say around Cicero's day, their ruling class takes it extremely seriously. And we know this because of all of Cicero's letters in which he continuously mentions the philosophical positions of all of his correspondents. And we keep thinking, why is this guy who's not important, why does he have a philosophical position that Cicero could make fun of or can debate? But they all do appear to have. But if we go back to uh, the original early Rome, which of course, you know, we don't have good, we don't have an Iliad and an Odyssey. So we're, we're relying on Roman traditions for their early period, many of them old oral traditions of dubious value. But Those traditions not only told the Romans what had happened, but were also exemplary in the sense that they showed the Romans how they should behave. If you look back there, you have a quality which is very, very close to the original Greek arete, which is called virtus, or in the new pronunciation, virtus, but I don't like the new pronunciation, so particularly of that word, so I'm going to use the V, uh, even though my classical colleagues will make fun of me. Virtus simply means manliness from the Roman word for man, which is vir or weir, and in early times, seems to have been extremely similar to the particular qualities of Achilles, not so similar to the Odysseus part, that is to say, cunning public speaking and things like that are not quite so important. But there are interesting sort of Roman curiosities attached to this. Service to the state is much more important. Of course, the the Greeks in Homer don't really have a state even to be served. Um, Self-sacrifice, obedience to the authorities settled over you in a military context. If you're a young man, something called furor, which is a kind of berserker rage, and we think of 
course, immediately of Iliad, it begins, I sing the wrath of Achilles. And of course, Homeric heroes have that, have that uncontrollable wrath, but it's not part of Arete. It's bad. While the uh, the equivalent quality, at least among younger Romans, younger Roman warriors, furor, was regarded as part of the virtues and was a good thing rather than a bad thing. Although, of course, it is in conflict with obedient service to the state and things like that in a way they never really managed to, to reconcile particularly well. The Romans eventually, as I say, learn Greek philosophy. They take in some aspects of Greek conceptions of manliness and do not take in others. The most famous one they do not take in is getting naked and exercising, that is to say athletics. They are willing to watch Greeks do it, but they are not willing to do it themselves if they are persons of good family. You are expected, of course, if you are a a, a Roman of high family, to take military training, but the idea of getting naked and, you know, throwing the discus or wrestling or things like that, they just never do that. And what's interesting is that they, they, even when they're under profound Greek influence in the first first century AD, first century BC, first century AD, and so forth and so on, this wall never breaks. Romans never participate in in athletics, although it had had become a considerable part of the way in which the Greeks would show off their manliness. And what's weird is that you have these figures who are clearly considered emblems of virtus, and we can't exactly figure out in what their virtus consisted. So, for example, Cato the Elder. Cato the Elder, he's, he's incredibly obdurate. Is that what his, his virtues consists of? He is continue, He is incredibly litigious and is continuously sued by everybody around him. Is that what his virtues consists of? He's virtuous in a sort of mean, old-fashioned, grumpy way and says things like, well, you know, you shouldn't keep old slaves. You should sell them off or starve them to death and things like that. Is that what his virtues consists of. Even the Romans don't seem to have been exactly clear, but you do have this second set of people, just like the Greeks have their Odysseuses and their Achilleses. The Romans have mostly Roman-style Achilleses, that is to say warriors and generals, but then they have these then they have these mean guys, Cato the Elder and Cato the Younger, and, for example, has someone like Manlius Torquatus, who executes his own son or uh, attempts to do so for a disobedience in war, and this becomes a habit in the family, so that it's a very dangerous to be a Manlius Torquatus because your, your father's always trying to execute you. Again, these are men of virtus who do this, but it's not exactly clear that even even Romans quite understood what this virtus consisted of. By the time you get down to Cicero, you have translations of the Greek canonical virtues, and then these are applied to the Romans. But the translations aren't great, and it is never clear 
how, I, although again, their philosophy very seriously, it's never clear quite the degree to which those translations stick. And it's never clear the degree to which the four canonical virtues, which are now Roman virtues under their Roman names, really supersede the old military virtues. Although again, there's not a lot of question that at least Temperantia, which is the Roman translation of soft, well, one of the Roman translations of sophrasune, self-control. They can also translate it moderatio. They got lots of translations for it. It's an important concept that doesn't go very well into Latin. That becomes very important to them too. And they develop the same habits of ostentatious public self-control that the Greeks possessed. And in fact, they may have those quite far back. But the rest of the system, they never really quite figure out what something like justness or intellectual intelligence would be. They don't really quite count them in their sense of virtue. So I guess what I would say is that Roman virtus remains much more military, and the major, its major change over time is similar to that of the Greek one, which is taking on an ever stronger sense of self-control but probably that is a little bit weaker on the Roman side. And they never lose the sense that ultimately what a Roman should be doing is killing people, which is why, of course, they preserve activities like gladiatorial combat, which are quite idiosyncratic to them because they still admire. They say, this person may be a miserable slave and worthless in every other respect, but by God, is he brave? He has virtues. And that's why a Roman takes his son to watch the gladiatorial combats, to see this old-fashioned Roman excellence in action. I mean, we, of course, think of gladiatorial combat as gross, and a few highly philosophical Romans also thought of it as gross, but most of them thought of it as a display of their ancient and proper excellences, which, because we now live in this city of a million people, we cannot demonstrate every day, but at least we can go and watch it. That's really interesting. I, I think I've read somewhere about gladiators that this this admiration and at the same time disdain for gladiators is sort of it's, it's really kind of schizophrenic in a way. That ideal of that that virtus you were talking about, that bravery. I mean, even it compelled some free Romans to become gladiators themselves. They wanted to not just watch it vicariously; they wanted to experience it firsthand. This happened, I think, later on. That's absolutely right. It, uh, gladiators are such a strange bunch because they are, of course, legally infamous. That is to say, they are legally defined along with other low persons like actors as, uh, as having no shame. And therefore, for example, they cannot testify in court and they cannot, there are various crimes that cannot be committed against them because since they have no shame, they have no honor and therefore you cannot destroy their honor. So you can't really slander a gladiator because, well, he's said everything you can say against him. But you're quite right. You get lots of free men who choose to become gladiators for the profit and the glory involved in it. But then also aristocrats who choose to become gladiators, presumably to demonstrate their old-fashioned excellence. Gladiators were enormously sexually attractive, and this 
produced a great deal of legislation um, when the Roman emperors and, and, and the Roman state attempted to bar gladiators from access to freeborn women, which they being infamous were not supposed to have, but nevertheless, they had groupies. And what are you going to do if the daughter of a senator is following around a gladiator? It's disgraceful, but everyone understands that it's kind of expected and normal. So yes, they are the most remarkable mix of qualities. I mean, one can say, well, they were admired, but they just have this sort of weird legal quality. I mean, their legal infamy at the same time represents a real social infamy, which again, very odd to us. What can we say? We don't understand quite how that would work, but the Romans quite took it for granted. And as I say, I mean, it's something that the Greeks, having been shown it, this is one of the few things the Greeks do take up in the East under Roman rule. They do start having gladiatorial competitions and things like that. Of course, the great doctor, uh, the greatest ancient doctor, Galen, got his early experience as a gladiator doctor, which is a great thing because they get a lot more wounds than most people. So he was particularly good at general surgery, putting people back together. But ultimately, it is very Roman and very idiosyncratic and has a very very intimate relationship with Roman conceptions of manhood. At some level, I guess it's the idea that manhood is prior to everything else, and that however abject and base you might be, a slave, a convict, because of course you could be sentenced to the gladiatorial schools as a form of capital punishment, a slave, a convict, nevertheless, if you had virtues, if you have physical courage and strength, it does elevate you and make you a, a hero by some Roman definition, which they cannot get away from, no matter how civilized they get and no matter how reluctant they would individually be to fight either as gladiators or as warriors. Because, of course, after the first century BC, or after, I guess, we should say the middle of the first century AD, Italy is producing very few soldiers for Rome. Almost all Roman soldiers who are exemplars of virtus are coming from more recently conquered people, the Spaniards, the Gauls, and people like that. So the Italians' only contact with virtus is in the gladiatorial arena, but they still continue to like it. They don't say, okay, this has nothing to do with us. We're, this is now a barbarian thing. The armies for barbarians, we're not interested in it. No, they don't do that. They keep watching it. And they watch it more and more. The number of gladiatorial days of gladiatorial combat in Rome increases over time. And so there's clearly more and more of a taste for this type of thing as the actual opportunity or expect or expectation of military service for the people of Italy declines. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm curious, did as the as the Romans progressed and kind of went to the empire and this idea of temperance, you know, self-control took on, was that maybe that did that contribute to the rise of stoicism in Roman culture? Stoicism is fascinating and mysterious. Obviously, it is one of the Greek philosophical schools, and it is it becomes highly popular particularly under the early empire. We used to think, I mean, it's interesting, we used to think that it was, as it were, the major school in the time of Cicero in, in, the, in the last years of the Republic. But people have since gone through uh, Cicero's letters again and, and shown that there's much greater split 
in philosophical loyalties in that period. So, for example, Brutus, the Brutus who kills Julius Caesar, Brutus the Tyrannicide, turns out to be a Platonist, which is <laughs> interesting and weird because we don't run into or we didn't, we didn't think we ran into a lot of those. But then as you get into the first years of the empire, you do get a narrowing, an apparent narrowing of philosophical interests, and you do get more and more Stoicism. And then eventually, rather surprisingly, Stoicism becomes the creed of choice for the philosophical opposition to the emperors, so that you get men like Thrasyapetus, who are Stoic and who are regarded as Stoic saints, because they misbehave to such a degree that the emperors are finally obliged to kill them. Although, of course, being killed by Nero was not all that difficult to do. What I would say is that Stoicism encourages a sort of bland indifference to the outside world, which manifested itself very similarly to Roman temperance. But I'm not quite sure. I think they sort of line up kind of accidentally one with another. And the existence of temperantia may indeed as an important virtue, may indeed make Stoicism more popular. But Stoicism itself, uh, the more we learn about Stoicism, the more peculiar its Roman imperial manifestations seem to be. Because if you go back to, as it were, real Greek Stoicism, it's all about perfecting your own soul and being completely indifferent to anything that happens outside yourself. It's a, I guess you could call it a quietist breed. It's sort of like Quaker. It's a sort of like the ancient Quakerism, because what you're interested in is, is your own spiritual life, and you should not be engaged in the search for uh, exterior power, glory, and so forth. So you should not be engaged in warfare, collecting money, politics doing all those various other things, although, of course, Stoics, Roman Stoics do all those things, which is a little confusing to us. Roman Stoicism is, I think, very much, it's ripe for an, uh, an interesting restudy because it's so different from Greek Stoicism and in many ways contradictory to Greek Stoicism. I think that most of us know about Roman Stoicism and most of us who do know about Roman Stoicism, if we looked at Greek Stoicism, we'd think, wow, that's extremely weird and unattractive because the basic position of Greek Stoicism is don't worry. It's nothing to do with you. So you're not supposed to intervene in the world outside yourself. If you see an act of cruelty, you're supposed to just say, my soul is unaffected by that. There's a huge set, there's a set of definitions of things which have an impact on the soul, which is a very limited number of things, and things which are indifferent, that is to say, don't they don't matter, like wealth, political office, and things like that. And if you follow that list of things that are actually indifferent, the Romans by and large don't, but if you do follow that, you kind of stay at home and stare at your belly button all day. And so Roman Stoicism is an oddity, very different from Greek Stoicism. And as I say, uh, it needs another look. Interesting. I'm curious. So do we still see these notions of Greek and Roman manliness with us today, particularly in the West? I think there are a number of things. Obviously, one can say we, many of us, uh, still believe in courage. 
And it is a very good thing because those of us who believe in courage or those who believe in courage go and join the armed forces and and enact this desire for courage. The old Greek cunning intelligence, so important to someone like Odysseus, it seems to me that that could be usefully compared to the sort of intelligence that you need to do well in Wall Street and things like that. It's a pity. We tend not to regard that as a virtue in itself as the Greeks would have done. But if you look at it in Greek terms, I mean, it is admired and it should be admired because it creates wealth for all of us. And so I think that uh, there's a nice parallel there. But what I guess I would say to you is something that we don't notice, which is that since 1600, maybe 1500, the West has been an extraordinarily self-controlled place. That is, we do not, men do not cry in public. And in fact, the accepted, shall we say, volume of or the accepted range of emotion that men are allowed to display in public is limited. And if you go back uh, before that to the Middle Ages, you see kings crying and, and, and all sorts of things that we would consider quite off color these days. And of course, there have been periods where of greater emotional openness the 1960s of less emotional openness, all this doesn't much matter. In, in practice, since 15, 1600, we have been a society that has defined manliness in large part in terms of self-control to such a degree that we no longer notice. We, we notice that it's no longer, as it were, a choice. It's no longer something that we, we, we strive for consciously. We just take it absolutely for granted. And that is not historically inevitable. It's true of other societies. And it's one of the things that has made it easy for us to get along with a lot of people, such as, for example, with the Japanese who developed a very parallel system of emotional restraint in the Tokugawa shogunate and keep it to this day. But it does seem to me that we truly live in, we have been in four centuries of sophrasune, of temperantia, and we take it so for granted we don't even notice it, but that it is, in fact, historically exceptional, and we should notice it, and we should probably, in fact, realize that it is an aspect, uh, an emotional aspect of the Renaissance, because it comes into Europe, that that sort of self-restraint comes into Europe with the Renaissance. So it is, in fact, self in its origins, it's a self-conscious revival of Greek and Roman virtues, even though, and we keep the habits even now, even though we've long forgotten the Greek and Roman virtues or the fact that it was originally a revival of them. So as I say, to repeat myself, I think we live in a period of the most profound sophrosune, and that is the strongest survival from the ancient conceptions of manliness, that a man should not show excessive emotion. Fascinating. Well, well, Ted, this has been a great conversation. I think I asked you last time, is there a place people can go to learn more about your work or just check on Amazon? 
Well, they can check on Amazon. I publish under J.E. Lendon, a couple of books there. Also, of course, all my articles are to be found on academia.edu, which is free. All you have to do is sign up. A huge number of academics, of course, have got their stuff up there. So if you're interested in particularly in my stuff on things like Spartan honor, the way in which Spartan conceptions of manliness were different from those in the rest of Greece in their time, that type of material, which was published in obscure places is easily found there as Amazon's fine for the books, but academia.edu for the articles on specific subjects is also strongly recommended. Fantastic. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Well, Ted, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's always lovely. And I hope you have me back again. Thank you very much. My guest today was Ted Linden. He's a professor of classics at the University of Virginia. His professional name is J.E. Linden. It's the name he writes under. So if you're looking for works by him, search for J.E. Linden. He's got a book on Amazon.com. Soldiers and Ghost is a great one to check out. It's all about battle in ancient Greece and Rome, the development of it, the philosophy behind it. Also, you can find a full list of his papers that he's published for free on academia.edu. Search for J.E. Linden. He's got a paper on there about Spartan manliness as well as Roman honor. Also, you find links to resources where you can delve deeper in this topic by going to our show notes and that's at aom.is slash virtus. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show and have got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Just takes a minute. Helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 